The UK has hit a major milestone in the battle against COVID. This country has achieved an extraordinary feat, administering a total of 15 million jabs. 15 million people have had their first dose of a COVID vaccine, a shot in the arm for the government. There's light at the end of the tunnel. And on Monday, the Prime Minister will unveil a roadmap for how we leave lockdown. What can we learn from the experience of other countries? Today, we look to Israel, which is leading the vaccine race, and to Australia to see what they've got right. Hundreds of international tennis players are arriving ahead of the Australian Open in Melbourne. It's Masks Off Monday. Have a beer and have a few snags off the barbie with all the mates. We'll also look at some of the potential challenges which lay ahead as we try to control the virus at the borders. Victoria's hotel quarantine program is in disarray tonight with almost a 1,000 employees in isolation. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, a lockdown exit strategy. Lessons from Israel and Australia. In the week beginning the 22nd of February, we will set out our plan. And I'll be setting out as much as we can about that roadmap forward on February the 22nd. The Prime Minister has set out that he will he will publish a roadmap uh, on the 22nd of February, taking into account all that we know uh, by then. I am Tom Whipple and I'm the science editor at The Times. Tom, we've spoken throughout the year trying to get a, a sense of what might be coming down the road in terms of COVID. And, you know, if there were such things as parties, I'm sure you'd be asked this all the time now. But what happens next? What's what's the way out? What's the exit strategy for lockdown? Well, I guess there's short term things, there's medium term things and there's long term things. The short term thing is that we are busily vaccinating everyone and that's brilliant. We're not going to have a V-Day style party when we've vaccinated all the vulnerable people and we all return to you know put out the bunting and go to raves with our grannies. It's quite clear that there's going to be a slow, tentative, staggered opening. There's still a lot of people who are concerned about the younger age groups. So let's say our goal is to vaccinate everyone over 50. If we do that, then hopefully, assuming the vaccines are still working as, as well as we think they are, we will have protected almost all of the population from death. There are a lot of people who end up in hospital who are younger than that. And if we have some completely unrestricted outbreak among the you know, half to two thirds of the population that isn't vaccinated at all, then the concern is that we will end up with the hospitals overwhelmed again and a lot of people quite sick. So no one is now talking about immediately going back to completely unrestricted life. Beyond that, we've always seen the future by looking at other countries. Yeah. You know, we saw Italy, its hostels being overwhelmed, and that's what persuaded us to lockdown. We saw continental Europe coming out of lockdown, you know, having a summer. That was our future then, and now our future is Israel. Israel is the one country of any reasonable size that's further ahead of us in vaccination. And it, it's notable that they're not, you know, it hasn't been some kind of panacea. Oh, why is that? How has a successful vaccine programme played out there? 
My name is Anshul Pfeffer, the Times correspondent in Israel. What is the COVID situation like in Israel at the moment? Well, the COVID situation is pretty dire because uh, new cases of infections are still very high. Israel is currently about, I think, ninth in the world in rate of uh, new cases per capita. Yesterday, about 6,500 new cases were reported. The hospitals are still quite full and the death rate isn't as high as it could be because Israel still has quite a young population. So there are very few fatal cases, but it's still quite high. On the other hand, as probably uh, your listeners have been reading uh, about recently, Israel is also leading the world now in the proportion of COVID vaccination. So 39% of Israelis have already had their first dose, about 20% are after their second vaccination. But what we're seeing now is that even though vaccinations are working, it's still not enough to make a major impact on the COVID numbers of uh, infection and illness. We, you have to almost get double that. You have to get about 80% of the population. So when vaccination is going on and there's a major outbreak, it still isn't enough. We've sort of heard a lot about how well Israel has done in vaccinating people. So in terms of thinking of of an exit strategy and how we all come out of this, and we've all seen vaccines as the answer, we sort of assumed that the infection rates would have been going down correspondingly. Why is it that they're not? Is it that people, even if they're getting one dose of the vaccine, are still getting COVID, but maybe getting it less seriously? What's happening? It seems to be mainly the fact that, yes, vaccinations work, but they're not a silver bullet that works immediately. You have to reach a a much larger proportion, more than a majority, but at least two-thirds, if not three-quarters, of the population vaccinated to make a significant change. And another thing we're seeing is that those who are rushing to be vaccinated are usually people who are better informed and who also have been taking better care of themselves. It's not just how many people you vaccinate, it's also who you vaccinate. One of the things that we've heard about here, for example, is the fact that you've managed to have a 24-7 24-hour, seven-day-a-week operation, which we, we haven't quite got to. So you, you just mentioned anyone over the age of 16 can get a vaccine. We're sort of doing it very much in tranches in terms of ages. How has Israel gone about vaccinating so many people so quickly? Well, one of the keys has been supply, and it's something that you know, obviously is, is talked about a lot now in Britain and in the, and the European Union as well. Israel is a much smaller country. It's only 9 million citizens. And Israel reached an agreement very early on with Pfizer, with one manufacturer of the vaccine, on basically serving as sort of a, a national test bed or laboratory for the vaccine. In the first few weeks of the vaccine, it was for anybody over 65 and obviously also medical teams. After a few weeks, when the, the operation was already quite streamlined and the rate was fast, they began bringing down the age group to 50 and then over 40s. And then last week, they basically said, Anybody over the age of 16, which is the the minimal age for the Pfizer vaccine, can come in. And I visited a few of the vaccination centres in recent days, and they're not packed. I mean, people are coming in all the time, but the rate has actually gone down as we've reached sort of that 40% point. And I've spoken to some of the medical personnel who have been delivering the vaccinations. They were telling me that at the beginning... We would be doing 150 people in one shift. Now we're doing 60 or 70. So the rate has almost gone down by half. Our science editor, Tom Whipple, has also been looking at the rollout in Israel. I spoke to Ron Balliser, who had the vaccine programmes of one of the major healthcare providers. 
And he says, look, you know, their lockdown has failed to get the reproduction rate below one. They've decided they can't just linger indefinitely with high cases and full lockdown. So they've got this thing, they call it exit strategy with zero safety margins. And having... What does that uh, mean? (laughs) It means that they're opening with high cases and they know that it's going to return. But having vaccinated 95% of their 70 and older age groups... They think this is just about doable, but they're doing it in a staged fashion and they're hoping that as they vaccinate more people, they'll be able to bring transmission down that way and and just keep slightly ahead of the epidemic. I mean, is that as risky as it sounds? I mean, it is risky. They're hoping, as I say, they're still vaccinating and each time you vaccinate, you hopefully slow the transmission of the virus but they've just decided they've got pandemic fatigue and they can't stay in lockdown any longer i I think you know if we'd spoken a year ago and even into the summer we were saying you know vaccines are the end game they are but it's not a sort of quick checkmate we are adjusting this is becoming an endemic virus it's going from being epidemic to endemic hopefully over the course of a generation it fades completely into the background but it's a bumpy and painful process. So Israel is leaping into the future with an aggressive vaccine rollout and an easing of lockdown in the hope that the virus will become less and less prevalent. On the other side of the world, life already seems to be returning to normal in Australia, even though their vaccine programme doesn't begin until Monday. How have they done it? I asked Bernard Lagan, the Times Australia correspondent. We are basically living back to a fairly pre-COVID normal life. We don't have to wear masks so much. We're free to move around. And people are back in offices, Uh, back at work. Well, no, that's a very interesting question. You would think they would be because Sydney is relatively coronavirus-free. And so up until today was Melbourne. But a survey released yesterday shows that in Melbourne only 35% of office workers have returned to their deaths. Really? And in Sydney, it's around about 45%. The reason most people give for not wishing to return to their office in the city is not that they're worried about getting infected with coronavirus. It is that they very much prefer to work at home. Gosh, Bern, it's so interesting talking to you because it sort of feels like a a little glimpse into our post-COVID future. We're not even at the stage where we can think about what life might look like in terms of offices after, because we're still very much in the middle of it all. So tell me, how how has Australia got there? Well, Australia really got there simply by going hard and going early. So what I mean by that, let's, let's take perhaps the New Zealand as the best example. Right from March or late February last year, the New Zealand Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, took the advice of her health officials who said, look, it is possible to eliminate the virus in New Zealand in in the small country of 5 million people. And by eliminate, we mean ending community transmission of the virus. Now, a lot of Australians were very sceptical about that. Indeed, quite a lot of New Zealanders were very sceptical about that. But they had a long, harsh lockdown Hmm. where people were basically at home for around about six weeks, seven weeks. Only essential businesses were left open. The unemployment rate shot up, I think, at the, at the worst of it to about around about 8%. But New Zealand did indeed eliminate community transmission of the virus. At the same time, Australia was going on a slightly different path. They also had lockdowns. 
They went hard, they went early, but most Australian states said, look, the New Zealand goal is unattainable. We will go for suppression rather than elimination. But when New Zealand uh, began to be successful with elimination, some Australian states said, oh, let's do the New Zealand thing. West Australia has more or less eliminated community transmission of the virus. South Australia has eliminated community transmission of the virus. That's not to say there hasn't been an economic cost. And one of the the big economic cost really for Australia has been the absolute close down of the international tourist industry. So, Byrne, what lessons can we learn from Australia here in Britain? I mean, we are both islands. It should be possible to stop the virus at the borders. I know Australia has had a, a strict policy on that. How have you managed to keep the country hermetically sealed and to make sure the virus isn't coming in or is being spotted the moment it does? Well, I think the most important policy that Australia introduced very early on was to shut their borders. What did that mean? Sort of cancelling all flights or...? Cancelling all flights. And just as an example, you know, I live more or less under one of the Sydney airport flight paths. Mm. At this time of night, I'm talking to you for half an hour, there should be 20 aircraft going over the top. There, There will not be one. We might have one freighter, if we're lucky, going up to Hong Kong or somewhere like that. The only people allowed back into Australia were their own nationals who were trapped overseas, Mm. who really needed to get home. They might have been on holiday when the borders closed last year, or more likely they had jobs and were laid off and needed to get back home. Are you enjoying the peace and quiet? Well, (laughs) yeah, sure. That's been quite nice. But, I mean, there are hardly any international passenger aircraft coming in. Yeah. There are only very limited, even domestic flights. That's slowly building up, but it's been very, very limited for the last year. Australia has shut down its borders. It's also been running a hotel quarantine system for those who can come back in. What could the UK learn from its experience? And what is our route out of lockdown? We'll be back in just a moment. For more detailed coverage from around the world every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times. Join today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. We're setting up a new system of hotel quarantine for UK and Irish residents who've been in red list countries. Last week, the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, announced that travellers coming in from a list of more than 30 red-list countries, which include South Africa, Portugal, the UAE and much of South America, must quarantine in designated hotels before they can return to their homes. Any returning residents from these countries will have to quarantine in an assigned hotel room for 10 days from the time of arrival. Back to our Australia correspondent, Bernard Lagan. The second thing that both countries did very early was to introduce a very strict quarantine system for anybody who was allowed to come into the country, allocating hotels in the major cities, Sydney, Melbourne, Auckland, and said, right, these hotels, if you come back into Australia from overseas, we're going to require you to stay in this hotel under guard, basically, for two weeks in your room. You can't even go outside your room. Your meals will be dropped at your door. You'll be reaching and get your meal out, and that's all you can do. 
even exercising was banned in the end because they thought it was too dangerous. Now, that's going on. Wow. That's, that's still going? That's still going. And so far, the figures just came out today, 212,000 people have been through the Australian hotel quarantine system. That's 212,000 people wow. who have had to spend two weeks alone in a hotel room. Here in the UK, the government is only now introducing a quarantine system which only applies to some people arriving in the country. And it's a softer regime. People are free to leave their hotel rooms to exercise. Hotel workers are given very basic PPE and they're not tested daily. Given that even the strict Australian system has developed serious problems, are there lessons that we should be learning? I should just mention an issue which is emerging, which is quite serious. In this outbreak in Melbourne for the last two days, eight people in one hotel have, on the same floor, have been infected with the coronavirus. Now, these are all people who have been overseas, have come in, they have to quarantine for two weeks, they took a test when they set foot in the country, they didn't have it, somehow they've got it, it looks like they've got it in the hotel. How did that happen? It appears that at least one of the possibilities is that the coronavirus and possibly the more virulent new strains is travelling more rapidly through the hotel air conditioning systems. There is real concern that perhaps the hotel quarantine system has got some flaws. We have in the outback some quite large mining camps which hold thousands of people. They're kind of like small hotel rooms, so they're not all in one building. Each room is, has its own space. It's outside. It's got a, normally has a little veranda. There's lots of air, which is the most important thing. It has windows. So there was quite a push on by some of the medical profession to say, look, let's change this. Let's reopen these mining camps and let's start sending people to these remote areas to quarantine because oh. uh, that's going to be much better than a hotel quarantine. In fact, the government next week going to consider it building up to 6,000 sort of little rooms next to an airport in a remote part of Queensland, a very large airport which can accommodate big planes. So the idea would be that if you are returning from Australia, you'll go to outback Queensland and you'll be taken by bus from the airport right next door to a big paddock which will be full of these little buildings and that's where you'll quarantine. Now that the UK is introducing a hotel quarantine system, will it help us to get back to normal faster? And does it make the idea of normal travel even more distant? Here's the science editor, Tom Whipple again. It does make the idea of normal travel more distant. There is a big, a massive wild card in all of this and in, in all of our future, and that's what the virus does. We know what we can do, and we know what we can do with the virus as it is, but the virus, as we've seen, can evolve, and this shouldn't be a surprise. And it shouldn't be a surprise as well that eventually it will find ways to evolve to escape the vaccine. We are in the process of giving a large proportion of our country artificial immunity to this virus, which is brilliant. That's what a vaccine is, and that's fabulous. But that is going to put an increasing selection pressure on the virus to find ways around it. And he, it already has ways around it. It has this mutation E484K, it is a South African variant, which quite clearly can get around our immunity. And if it gets better at that, you know, that, that puts us 
not quite back to square one, but certainly in a bad place. And so it's a major policy objective now to prevent that happening. And that means keeping cases low and it means keeping cases out. What's your best case scenario for all this? You know, when you occasionally allow yourself to hope for light at the end of the tunnel, what is that? Okay, best case scenario, we get every adult vaccinated by the end of the spring. We discover that the vaccines maintain their strong efficacy in stopping transmission as well. So we see as well as plummeting hospitalizations, which we're going to start seeing plummeting deaths really soon, which is great. But as well as that, we see a massive effect on the R rate. And all of this is is possible. We don't see mutated versions taking off that can get around this. We possibly have holiday corridors with other countries, but we keep an eye out certainly this year for our borders. Next year, after the summer, I mean, there is a massive, massive global push. This time next year, it's all over? This time next year, I don't think it'll be all over. There'll be isolated outbreaks, um, which we will still have a test and trace system going to tamp them down. We will be very much living our lives in a far more normal way. I don't think they'll ever be the same, partly for good reasons. You know, I don't think we're ever going to go back to working from offices the same. I don't think anyone in our generation is going to go back to thinking about infectious disease in the same way. I think we will have a far more mature and sensible attitude to infectious disease. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see lower rates of flu in the future, perhaps significantly lower rates of flu, not because of a government deciding we can't take the risk anymore or you know any of these sort of libertarian concerns, but just because we will have changed our habits in a way that's eminently sensible. On the 22nd of February, the Prime Minister will make a statement to the House of Commons where he'll set out a roadmap for how the UK leaves lockdown. In Israel, despite their success with a vaccine rollout, Anshul Pfeffer says the path back to normality is still far from certain. One thing we've learned from this pandemic is that you know, we really have to be very humble and can't make too many presumptuous decisions. There is sort of like 40% of Israelis who were really eager to get their vaccine and believe in it and think that it's the best thing for them to do. And then there's a, there is another sort of similar-sized group of Israelis who were slightly sceptical and thinking, hold on, let's wait, let's not rush. There are various conspiracy theories about the vaccine. I think one thing that we've learned, I mean, I mentioned before, none of the things we've learned here in Israel is that it's very important to think about how to incentivize uh, people to take vaccination. And then there's the understanding that vaccinations, certainly in the early stages, are only just one tool and you have to use the other tools, the lockdowns or mm-hmm. other types of restrictions. These are things that are, that are changing all the time. And burn. If you were offering advice to the British government on how we can find a way out of lockdown, you know, back to something like normal, as you've managed in Australia, what would be your best tips? The strategies that have worked here, closure of the borders has worked, a hotel quarantine system or a quarantine system has worked, and I think clear, consistent messaging from political leaders. I remember talking to um, the epidemiologist who was the chief advisor to Jacinda Ardern back in June for an article I was doing for The Times, and he said to me, it's not too late for Britain, you know. And I said, what do you mean? He said, look, it's an island. 
a similar lockdown would have been possible. And he was very disappointed that Britain did not attempt it back then. And the lessons for how this all ends aren't just geographic. What can we learn from history about the end of a pandemic? Here's Tom Whipple again. You know, when did Spanish flu end? So, you know, if you ask people that, they'll say probably 1919, 1920. In 1999, someone went up to the very northern tip of America to an Inuit settlement which had been hit heavily by Spanish flu. Um, 90% of the population had died. And they went and exhumed one of the graves and they took out the lungs of a 20-something Inuit woman and they examined them and they got the full genome of Spanish flu and they analysed it. And after analysing it, a doctor who you might have heard of called Anthony Fauci wrote a paper looking at what had happened to it and traced the family tree of Spanish flu and Spanish flu never went away. It mutated, it shuffled genes, it created daughter viruses in different ways, but people are dying to this day of Spanish flu. So in in that sense, pandemics never end. They just get less and less and less significant. They fizzle out. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. My guests today were Times Science Editor Tom Whipple, Australia correspondent Bernard Lagan, and from Jerusalem, Anshul Pfeffer. The producer was Sevda Moyasari. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Carla Patella. If you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for stories you'd like us to cover or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, Bake Off winner, TV chef and author Nadia Hussein reveals the violent racial abuse she suffered as a British Bangladeshi in 1980s Luton, her struggles with mental health and how baking has changed her life. Racism and that kind of unconscious bias exists in every industry and so now that i'm in them i see the problem with them is that there is nobody else past imperfect with rachel sylvester and alice thompson nadia hussein in her own words now available as a podcast listen on the times radio app or wherever you get your podcasts when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.